are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook. Go to our Facebook, see what my producer Katie puts up there on a regular basis. we got a guest coming up in a little bit. Ryan McMakin is going to be joining me. Ryan McMakin. So uh, you want to stay tuned for that. He's got an interesting take on the Supreme Court. And speaking of the Supreme Court, I've been thinking about... I don't know if it's kabuki theater or whether it's a real battle between President Obama and the Republicans in the Senate. I don't know whether they're just all playing us or whether it's real, and it doesn't really matter. But a couple things I thought of. First thing I was thinking about was who in their right mind would want to be President Obama's Supreme Court nominee. Think about this. Think about this. Mitch McConnell came out and said, no matter who he nominates, it's not going to happen. We are not going to approve, give a hearing to anything of any nominee that President Obama puts forward. Now, that's a pretty bold statement, considering the fact that President Obama hasn't nominated anybody yet. President Obama has a constitutional obligation to nominate a Supreme Court justice. Senate has a constitutional obligation to have a hearing and a vote for that nominee. And I've said in the past, I, I, it doesn't bother me if President Obama wants to make a, uh, a nomination, and it doesn't bother me if the Senate votes on it. Up or down, either way, don't care. But you think about this, who would want that nomination? Some of these judges spend their whole lives their whole career grooming themselves, meeting the right people, doing the right things to hopefully get a Supreme Court nomination. And you remember, these jobs are for life. Life. Now, when that clause was put in the Constitution back in the 1700s, people didn't live that long. I think we ought to change that, but that's another story for another day. But you're pretty much guaranteed that if you're nominated by President Obama, you're going to be, for lack of a better term, Borked. Remember uh, Judge Bork? His name became a verb uh, associated with uh, a Supreme Court nomination getting refused by the Senate. So that was my first thought. My first thought was, Who would want that nominee? It would destroy a lifetime of grooming, if you will, for that position. Now, I think it's wrong. I absolutely think it's wrong for the Senate to come out and say, 
we're not going to approve anybody. Uh, we're going to let the people of the United States choose the next justice. Well, no, they're not. It's the the president that makes the nomination, and the Senate approves it. They're just afraid, as they always are, that what President Obama puts forth as a nominee, or who he puts forth as a nominee, will cost somebody some votes in the Senate. That's all they care about. They don't care about who becomes the Supreme Court justice. They don't care. Trust me, they don't care. What they care about is, will their actions cost them some votes this fall? And to come out before any nomination has been presented and simply say, we're not going to allow a Supreme Court justice to be chosen before the next presidential election. So you're talking a year or so before Justice Scalia gets replaced. That means the court is essentially 4-4. Now that in itself, that statement in and of itself, tells you the problem with the Supreme Court. It is political. Why should judges on the Supreme Court especially have a political affiliation? Now, formally, I know they don't, but we all know who is who and what side of the the political spectrum they fall on. I'm going to talk to Ryan McMakin about whether we even need a Supreme Court. That's almost blasphemy in this country. The other thing I thought about with the court being 4-4 and President Obama being in office, by the way, the Constitution doesn't say that the president shall make a nomination to the Supreme Court unless he's in a lame duck year. It does not say that. Like it or not, President Obama is the president, and he will be the president until next January. So I don't blame you. I, 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 you know, I, you know my opinion of him. He's not my favorite person in the world, but I don't blame him if he makes a nomination. It wouldn't change my opinion of him at all either way. But with a 4-4, and if all the, the decisions are 4-4, that means the lower court's rulings stand. That's all that means. So that being said, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of laws being made, a lot of policy being made out there that probably would have been overturned by the Supreme Court but not by federal judges. And you're going to start seeing a lot of those laws go through because the Supreme Court won't be able to overrule them. As an example, there's two examples that uh, I want to share with you. One, recently a federal judge curtailed the right to record police. This is a federal district court, Judge Mark Kearney, Eastern District of Pennsylvania. And what he did is essentially ruled that a citizen, you or me, doesn't have a right to record a police officer. In the past, that has always fallen under First Amendment protection. But now, according to this judge, no. The recording of police officers is not protected by the First Amendment unless the recorders are making an effort to challenge or criticize the police. Well, you don't know if you're challenging or criticizing the police until after the recording is made. 
And if you wait until after there's something to record before you start to record, you don't record anything. So the first ruling that I noticed with my my own personal theory of pushing the limits because the Supreme Court is essentially deadlocked now is this ruling out of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, Federal District Court, on First Amendment rights in recording the police. Now, the uh, ACLU is going to appeal this, and uh, we'll see how that goes. I think it'll be shot down relatively quickly because it's clearly unconstitutional. But the ability of individuals to record police in public without fear of reprisal is essential mechanism for injecting transparency into everything, to hold the government accountable for misconduct, and in many cases for protecting good police officers from uh, wrongful blame. The second thing I looked at, ironically, is in Lexington, Massachusetts. I don't know if you saw this this week or not, but Lexington, Massachusetts, that's where the shot heard around the world started the American Revolution. 240 years ago or something, 340 years ago, I don't know, long time ago. But they've come out, and now they're trying to get their local government, uh, according to city council, town member meeting, to seize legally owned firearms from town residents. It's all being led by one of these town meeting men uh, members, a Harvard professor named Robert Rotberg. I don't know who he is. But he's put forth Article 34, which will be brought up uh, March 21st at the uh, town meeting in Lexington, and essentially fashioned after Highland Park, Illinois' language banning assault weapons. But his article includes any firearm that is semi-automatic and can accept a magazine that will hold more than 10 rounds. It also includes any magazine that holds more than 10 rounds. And everybody who falls under this provision will uh, be forced to sell, render inoperable, or have them seized and destroyed by the police department. Now, this is just stupid. Okay, most of these people wouldn't know a semi-automatic weapon if they, if if you dropped it in their lap. I've seen many of these videos, the uh, commentary by these political leaders keep using the word fully automatic, fully automatic, fully automatic. They they don't know the difference. They don't know. But simply semi-automatic, meaning each trigger, each time you want to shoot, you have to pull the trigger. And for the city council to ban these, destroy and confiscate these and magazines, clear violation of our Second Amendment rights. It's ironic. It's Lexington, Massachusetts. Um This is exactly what the Second Amendment is all about. So I think that people are getting bolder because Justice Scalia is gone. The Supreme Court is essentially going to be frozen, and they'll they'll get their way at least for a while. We'll see. Coming up next, Ryan McMakin is going to be joining me. He's the editor of Mises Daily and the Austrian, a Mises Institute journal, published six times a year. 
author of the book, Commie Cowboys. Can't wait to talk to him. That's up next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Ryan McMakin. He's an editor and writer at the Mises Institute. He's the editor of Mises Daily and the Austrian the Mises Institute Journal published six times each year. He's also the author of Commie Cowboys, the bourgeoisie and the nation state in the Western genre. Ryan, welcome to An Economy of One. Hi, it's great to be here. I told my producer, I said, oh, you got to give this guy a call because uh, what caught my eye was a column you wrote about abolishing the Supreme Court. And uh, with all the hoopla, for lack of a better term, stuff going around the death of Justice Scalia, it seemed apropos because to me it illustrated all the the commentary between uh, the Senate and pundits and the White House, that the Supreme Court has really become more of a, uh, a political body than, than a, a court that interprets the Constitution. And when I saw your article, it, it just resonated with me. Well, I hate it whenever a politician dies and... That's what a Supreme Court justice is. They're right. a political appointee and a politician. And every time one of them dies, presidents do, of course, we have to listen to weeks and weeks of stories <laughs> about how great they were and how wonderful the institution is that they were a part of. And America needs the Supreme Court or the presidency. And don't you have all these nostalgic ideas and emotional right. feelings about all this stuff? So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a trial to just ignore it all. Um, and I'm sure Scalia was a swell guy, and probably as far as Supreme Court justices go, wasn't all that bad. However, uh, the, the whole concept of the court as this group of five people mm-hmm. who decide what's legal or illegal for 320 million people should be so absurd to everybody and so obviously absurd that it shocks me that uh, it's even controversial (laughs) to suggest that this is terrible. But nevertheless, every time someone dies or retires from the court, we have to have this conversation again about which five people shall decide what law is in the United States, and then we go through it all over again. Now, from the, the, the founding fathers, I mean, what was their intent for the Supreme Court? Well, I think the verb that we want to use, really, when we refer to what it is that the, the justices are supposed to do is adjudicate, rather than interpret the Constitution, and certainly they shouldn't be legislating. But as a court, they should be adjudicating cases. And which cases are those? Well, the Constitution tells us the very specific cases. It's uh, cases of conflict between two or more states, or conflicts between a state and an individual person in another state. And so it's very limited in what counts as the original jurisdiction of the court. And we can see in those writings that the court's really there to try and smooth over conflicts between states and uh, to try and avoid civil wars, something the court failed at, obviously, Mm -hmm. and to generally provide a means for disparate legal systems in different states to work with each other. 
And, of course, the court has gone way, way beyond that now in what it does. It now acts as a Supreme Court for all state courts uh, and, of course, for the the federal judiciary, which beyond the Supreme Court, the entire federal judiciary, all the uh, the circuit courts, all of the appellate courts, all of that was a creation of Congress and could be uncreated by Congress simply with a passage of, of a majority vote in Congress. There's nothing constitutional about any of that. So Congress, if it wanted to, could uh, simply tell the court that there's no longer an appellate court system. It could no longer hear these cases, could also limit what the appellate court system could hear. All of that's simply a matter of legislation. So people think that the Supreme Court is this whole thing of federal courts and federal law and all that, when really it was supposed to be this extremely limited institution that only heard certain types of cases. Now, in in today's day and age where the the court has evolved to, or what the court has evolved to, Congress passes something like that with the Supreme Court overrule its own extinction, really? That's the interesting case there, is, of course, <laughs> legally, they can decide what's legal all they want. But, of course, as a political institution, uh, we have to consider what are the political realities beyond the legal reality. Law and politics are two separate things. So the, what we find is historically the court can really only succeed when it has at least one other branch of government on its side. So oh, if the court okay. knows it can count on Congress to support it, it'll be fine. If the court knows it can count on the president to support it, it'll be fine. And we see this breakdown at various points in history, the most famous being uh, when the court ruled that uh, the states could not uh, seize Indian lands. Uh, and specifically, it was a case that involved Cherokee land. Right. And the court said, nope, you can't take those lands and you can't move those Indians anywhere. And President uh, Andrew Jackson at the time said, well, the court has made its decision. Let them enforce it. Because, of course, <laughs> the court doesn't have an army. The court doesn't have a police force. The court can't do anything unless the other branches of government agree with it. Now, and so the court's limited by political realities, if not right. legal ones. We're speaking with Ryan McMakin. He's an editor and writer at the Mises Institute. We'll be back with more with him. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. of one with Gary Rathbun. We're talking with Ryan McMakin. He's the editor and writer at the Mises Institute about abolishing the Supreme Court. So, Ryan, in uh, reading through uh, a lot of your writings, uh, I came across an article or a column you did a couple years ago on the mythology of the Supreme Court. And one thing that stuck in my mind that I didn't quite understand, I'm not a legal scholar by any means, of the imagination, but you talked about Justice Marshall was the first to introduce judicial review. What's judicial review, and is that really a big overstep that started us down this path of of the Supreme Court being supreme? Well, judicial review is a concept uh, that the court has the ability and the jurisdiction to decide what is or what is not constitutional based on legal grounds. Okay. Um, Now, 
the one can argue that the framers had the idea that all three branches would it would be up to them to decide what was constitutional or non-constitutional. If the president thinks something is non-constitutional, he can veto the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if Congress thinks that they can re- refuse to pass a law or use a veto in their own way, um, simply by refusing a majority vote on something. And uh, whether uh, the court, however, is, is allowed that sort of power in itself is unclear. In fact, there's good reason to believe that the court was imagined to have even less power than the other two branches. And that brings us back to the issue of it was merely supposed to adjudicate cases and not interpret the Constitution. Certainly doesn't say anything in the Constitution about the court shall interpret what the Constitution means. And in fact, the fact of judicial review uh, has really uh, negated the entire Article 5 of the Constitution, which is this whole process of uh, constitutional amendments that allowed us to change the Constitution. Because of Marshall and his case, which was Marbury versus Madison, and this is something that every political science teacher teaches. It's, it's like one of these fundamental issues that you teach in American politics is there were the courts, and then early on in the, in the court's history, there was Marbury versus Madison, and this is where John Marshall decided that it was up to the Supreme Court to decide if something was constitutional or not. This was something they came up with on their own. Some legal scholars claim that, oh, no, the founders had that idea. It's possible that some of them did, but it was hardly a consensus that the court should be sitting there deciding what's constitutional. Mm -hmm. So ever since then, we've just accepted this, um, although we shouldn't, uh, which was the purpose of that article. Right. In reading through what you've written and and what other people have written about the Supreme Court, especially most recently, one of the things you talk about is the kind of the mystique. Uh, I don't know if you call it secrecy, but the fact that they don't allow... Uh, cameras or anything in the in the court system that you know they all have these nice black robes they sit three feet higher than everybody else in the room it just as I was reading through this it kind of reminded me of of the great Oz and and how we dare not look behind the curtain as to how things actually get along but uh, these nine judges they're they're probably pretty good friends with each other and they don't really know what's going on in the real world do they uh, well, it, that gets even more so the higher you get. Uh, of course, a, a judge down at the county level or so on may have had a real job not right. too long ago. But, of course, by the time you get to the Supreme Court level, and, at, and, of course, federal judges, unlike state and local judges, are guaranteed their jobs for life. Right. If you know you ever, never have to worry about finding another job, and the marketplace becomes irrelevant to you. So why bother keeping up with anything? And you, if you think any of the Supreme Court justices have ever really used the Internet, especially the older <laughs> ones, I mean, have they ever ha- even had a computer on their desk? Right. I mean, lawyers as a profession are really pretty out of touch in yeah. terms of technology and uh, being able to use things that ordinary people <laughs> use uh, in their jobs. It's an extremely conservative profession. Um, and so it's all the worse for judges. But the reason they're able to get away with this is because we're indoctrinated from grade school on that judges somehow are these non-political people, that they think only in terms of high ideals and, and will only come to a judgment if their logical, legal theory takes them to that conclusion, um, mm-hmm. that they would never, ever decide a case based on political loyalties or something like that. And, of course, that's just all... Total nonsense. Judges are they're lawyers that have worked for the government usually at some point. There are tons of them are former prosecutors. They're friends of the governor or friends of the president. That's how they get appointed. Right. It's interesting because, 
you know, I, I, I've said for a long time that I don't think judges, especially Supreme Court judges, should be appointed for life. I mean, I, when did that come about? Was that always the case that when, when they're there, they're there for life? Yes. That's, okay. that's written in there. It also says you can never reduce their salaries. Okay. Um, but, you know, back when that was written, what was the average lifespan of people? I mean, it wasn't 100. Right. I mean, I mean some of these people, I, I mean, I, I, I'm 59. My mother-in-law just died at 92, and she was pretty sharp. But I wouldn't want to put my future in her, in her decision-making capabilities, you know. Right. I mean, the, the reasoning <laughs> fades over time. Sure, we all have 80-year-old relatives, and we love them, and they're wonderful people, but would you want to put the lives of other human beings in their hands most yeah. of the time? Or, or the lives of 300 million people. Right. And so, yes, of course, people died in their 50s and 60s, usually, back when, these, uh, when the Constitution was written. And if you got some horrible disease, you died pretty quickly. You couldn't be kept alive by the health care system indefinitely right. Uh, right. like you can now. And so, yes, it was a very different situation. I mean, heck, even uh, even Catholic bishops are forced to retire at age 75 because <laughs> we recognize you shouldn't be running something like that. Right, right. It's just one of those things that, you know, I don't think anybody ought to have a lifetime job. And if they do, they ought to have the, the, the courtesy to bail out and enjoy their grandkids and stuff at, at some point. You know? Sure. And some of them do, like David Souter retired at age 69 or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, so he he allowed some other person to uh, replace him and do damage in their own way. But uh, yeah, some hang on till they're 90, yeah. like John Paul Stevens. And of course, in the past, we're always supposed to revere these judges in the past, but who knows how many of these guys were just hanging on and had no idea what was going on in the last decade yeah. of their careers as judges. Well, and I understand you got to have a reason to get up in the morning, but my goodness, you know, like you said, there's 300 million people that are being affected by these decisions. Now, you know, you, you raised a, a, an interesting point because there, there's nine justices, and I don't remember, and I should have done a little more research, but didn't... Um, didn't President Roosevelt increase that number from seven to nine, or was it a threat to increase the the number of justices? Yes, he threatened to, and that shows how much of uh, how much power Congress can have mm-hmm. over the court. People think that the nine judges thing is written into the Constitution, but it's not at all. It says that there shall be a Supreme Court. Period. End of story. Well, I don't know. Is that one judge? Mm-hmm. Is that 50? It can be whatever number Congress wants it to be. Early on, it was six judges. It was an even number, by the way. And Congress even passed legislation saying that the judge must decide cases on a, let's see, on a four-to-two basis. That adds up to six, right? Yeah, on a four-to-two basis, yeah. meaning essentially the, the court was deciding everything on a two-thirds majority basis. Right, right. And so those are all things that Congress can decide. You know, it was interesting because you talked about why not have one judge representing each state since it's it's state rights and state law involved. Sure. Why not have 50 on the Supreme Court? Right. And Why, uh, why not? <laughs> why not? The, <laughs> the only reason I would say against that, Ryan, is I'd want to make sure we got the right pre- 
president uh, appointing 41 of them. You know, <laughs> that, that would really load the court for life there, you know. So. Yes, I think you would want a phase-in program for that. <laughs> I think so. For sure. You know, a couple on each presidential term or something, you know. So uh, let me change gears just a little bit when the in the few minutes I have left with you. One of the, the, the other things that caught my eye in, in your writings was uh, you wrote a column talking about the difference between a republic and a democracy. And I, I find myself in reading through this getting getting educated a little bit because I often use the term representative republic that we are not a democracy in this country. And, you know, you, you talk about educating students and educating people about the difference between that and, and what the real terms are of a, a republic versus a democracy. Can you chat with us a little bit about that? Sure. This is the sort of thing where you just end up coming off like something of a pedantic jerk, right? Where you're saying, wow, you're not using that word right. Yeah. But, uh, but I do think we should be exact in our terminology when we are referring to what is a democracy or what's a republic. And a republic has historically just been used as a term that says this type of government is not a monarchy and it's not a privately owned regime. So a, a king in the middle of the ages would have been actually the private owner of all of the land within his kingdom. It would have been a private estate. And so the term republic started being used more commonly as we started getting these types of governments that were no longer monarchies. They were uh, the public thing, which is what republic just means in Latin. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this was, to, this was to have a society where people were citizens and had some say over things that the government owned or that the government controlled as opposed to it being simply a matter of dealing with a private family or a private estate that controlled the government. And, of course, you can have a republic then that's not democratic at all, like uh, the Republic of Venice that existed for a thousand years, or you can have a republic like the United States that has many democratic institutions. So you can have a republic that is democratic, but when we, when most people, though, when they use that distinction, republic, not a democracy, I think what they're, what they're using the word democracy to indicate is a, like a pure democracy that has no legal framework where just whatever the majority wants goes. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with being against majoritarianism then or that type of democracy. Right. I just think we should be, be clear that the framers did, of course, accept certain types of democratic institutions and had no problem with elections and people voting in them and so on. There's just a lot of there's a lack of precision when most people talk about those two concepts. So I think we would save time if we better define what we were talking about. You know, and I agree with that. I, I, I try to to get that information out. We've spent a lot of time in recent weeks on the show talking about socialism because Bernie Sanders running for presidential nomination, at the very least, he's been integral in saying, I'm a socialist, rather than not saying it and, and pretending to be something else. But many people, we haven't gotten a real clear idea of what it means to be a socialist. And I hear the apologists uh, on TV and different shows saying, well, yeah, but it's a democratic socialism like like Europe. And one of my favorite authors is Ayn Rand, and she describes a democratic socialism as a difference between murder and suicide. I mean, you, you're still dead. You just you just vote for the socialism that kills you rather than have it at the point of a gun. At what point uh, is, is, if ever, is this country going to define the terms correctly and, and really take a, an interest in, in who and what they're voting for? 
Well, I'm guilty, of course, using those terms incorrectly. I wrote a column recently saying, uh, Bernie's right. Uh, the right. U.S. is already a socialist country. Right. I read that. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, if you define socialism the way Bernie defines it, then it's true. Right. The, U- the U.S. already is socialist in the way Bernie defines socialism, which is uh, redistributionism, uh, New Dealism, uh, taking, uh, taxing one group of people to give money to another group of people. And right. so if that's our definition of socialism, yeah, the, the U.S. has been that way for decades. Uh, we've been speaking with Ryan McMakin, a prolific writer. He writes nearly daily at, at Mises.org, an editor of Mises Daily and the Austrian, uh, six, time, uh, six times a year journal from the Mises Institute. Ryan, this has been a, a real treat for me. I read all of your stuff, and we're going to put it all up on our website and, and Facebook. Keep up the good work, and I hope we get a chance to uh, chat with you again soon. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Up next, maybe being lazy is the key to survival. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, hardly a week goes by that I don't come across several stories of what I would call scientific dumbness. I don't even know if that's a word, but it's certainly descriptive of what I see. This week, there was two of them. One, there was a study that's bulletproof. It absolutely positively proves that humans are causing the earth to warm. It's a uh, couple articles based on a couple studies. One study examined 6 million years of climate change data. I don't know who was gathering data 6 million years ago, but I'm sure glad we got a hold of it. That, that helps settle the science for sure. But anyway, they've taken readings all over the world and have determined that the sea levels are rising faster than they ever have in the last six million years. And that our carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere are dangerously close to where the Earth was six million years ago when sea levels were much higher than they are now. Now, I know they study ice cores, they study rock cores, all that kind of stuff, fossils, that kind of stuff. But the trouble is they use computer modeling and they came right out and admitted that what uh, they, they're unable to account for is the kind of polar melting that is now occurring because polar ice caps are actually getting larger. They're expanding. So you know what they did? They ignored all that data in their models. They simply ignore it because it doesn't quite fit the model. And... Uh, To quote them, one guy said, that should have big uncertainty graphs. No kidding. But all of this is coming about at the same time that the Paris Climate Accords have uh, really been falling apart. Had these big meetings, and everybody pats each other on the back and and, uh, listens to each other's lectures and, and that kind of stuff and figures out way to different ways for America to be damaged and uh, pay up the big money for the rest of the world's activities. 
But uh, the fact is, they don't know anything. They think the ocean could rise by a, a yard, three feet, by 2100, the year 2100, and that could cost about $346 billion. Let me help you. $346 billion bucks is nothing. A lot of money to you and me if it's sitting on a table in cash. But in the scope of things, over the next 84 years, pocket change. Our government spends that in about 20 minutes or something. So stupid science, scientific dumbness, whatever we want to label it. The other thing is there was a uh, research done in Japan that said lazy workers could be the key to survival. Now, this has all kinds of ramifications and connotations to it. But what this researcher did is he studied eight colonies of 150 ants each. So 1,200 ants. In each of these colonies, there was a certain number of ants that kind of remained inactive while the other ones were working. The other ones were performing all kinds of tasks in the hive, including cleaning eggs and taking care of the babies and larvae and stuff. But 20 to 30% of them remained inactive. So his conclusion is that uh, we need some reservoirs of lazy workers. Well, if you dig a little deeper into the research, you find something else out that's kind of interesting, that these inactive ants performed a critical function in the sense that they replaced other ants when they grew fatigued. So it allowed the care and the work in the, the colony to essentially go uninterrupted. So they weren't really lazy. They're just sitting in reserve and uh, filling in as needed. But this is another example of, I don't know whether you call it clickbait or not, but certainly headlines that are deceptive. And if you don't read the research, you draw the wrong conclusion. But lazy workers are not the key to survival. Having workers fill in as others get replaced is the key to survival. So absolutely deceptive. I could see where somebody would say, well, this research shows that lazy workers are the key to survival. We need to pay more people to be lazy. Like if that's possible in this country, you know, 45% of households in this country pay no federal income tax. 45% no federal. That means the other 55 is carrying 100% of the load. And you and I are one of those. Last thing I need is some Japanese researcher coming out and saying lazy workers are seen as the key to survival. No, they're not. Trust me on that. It's workers coordinating their effort, division of labor, filling in for each other. So uh, careful reading headlines. Read the story. And uh, six million years of data is being interpreted. So that's uh, good for us. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathbun. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 